listening to Changing Careers, a podcast about how MBA careers are changing and how MBAs change their careers. I am Conrad Chua. Today's guest is Ralph Siruthan, Medical Director and UK Operational Board Member for Roche, the global pharmaceutical and diagnostics company. Ralph has a very long career in healthcare, and I caught up with him to learn more about his career transitions and the global work to combat COVID-19. Hello, Ralph. Hi, Conrad. A pleasure to be with you today. Could you start by telling us very briefly your career journey so far? Yeah, um, it's it's been one that I would say is in three different parts. Because of that, I've always tried to think of a bit of a common theme. And the common theme for me has been trying to be a positive force for change at many different levels. And that, that started with um, training as an NHS doctor. I trained at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School uh, and then now known as Imperial College and, pra- and actually practice medicine, both in hospital and then general practice. So seeing patients for about, in total, nine years and six years of training. The second phase uh, was uh, politics. Um, I stood for parliament and was a prospective parliamentary candidate for the Labour Party under then Blair and Brown um, for a period of three years while still transitioning across actually into the third part of my career, which was uh, moving into the pharmaceutical industry. And I've worked at four different companies over a period of time. Um, and the link for me, uh, come on, let's come back to that being a positive force for, for change, whether that was at the initial level training and practicing medicine, which was clearly seeing patients a one-to-one difference, whether that was in politics. And that's where I got really comfortable with that sort of macro space, trying to make societal good and larger changes, although unfortunately not successful in being elected. And then thirdly in pharmaceuticals with being a really positive force for change when it comes to, um, the amazing work we do with following the science and changing societal health at, at big levels. I want to come back to the politics part uh, later on, but first, how did you get started in healthcare? You mentioned about you know your your passion for uh, making societal good, but what pushed you towards healthcare and medicine? Was there? Uh, do you come from a family of doctors, or do you know people uh, who are in the medical field? Yeah, and this will, I have a lot in common with all the MBAs and uh, EMBAs here. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. The link uh, with a number of us in healthcare is my family. So my parents are immigrants from different sides of the world. Um, they, My dad is from Mauritius uh, in the Indian Ocean, and my mother is from Guyana in South America. They both uh, are immigrants um, related to the national healthcare system. They both came over aged 18, um, long journeys back then, um, by boat to be NHS immigrants, and they were part of that Windrush generation. They then actually both trained uh, to be nurses. Um, So the NHS has been pivotal to my family. Um, For the whole of my life, I remember my parents doing long shifts, um, and that healthcare link basically came there. The the fundamental thing, though, Conrad, that mattered for me was, especially when I was going through getting towards choosing universities and medical schools, was the fact that medicine for me was I really loved the blend between an art and a science. So my strengths were in sciences, but the fact that I was hopeful that one of the skills I could bring was the communication side of that, the emotional intelligence, the EQ stuff. A lot of the stuff we teach on the MBA, actually, which are the softer skills versus the the finance and um, management uh, strategy pieces. Um, and that, that was what I really wanted to do uh, to find as a blend. So the 
the link for me was the family is the interest plus the as I was growing up the the science piece but then being able to add in that communication piece was the the real attraction um, as I moved through and chose obviously Imperial and Mary's and then um, going into practice. Obviously, being a politician requires a lot of that communication skills, but what got you interested in politics? So it was, and I think one of the things that has been, I've noticed as I've, my career has evolved, was there are certain pivot points and there are certain points where you, you feel that you can't evolve any further um, or that you come to a point where you're not really learning anymore. Um, that point for me actually came when I'd been in healthcare practicing seeing patients for about 12 years in total and I'd become a general practitioner. And um, for me at that point, I felt that my work in the NHS was quite limited to absolutely helping the individual patient in front of me, but not being able to make a bigger societal change. So I was seeing things that were really important changes post Thatcher and the Labour government, uh, and therefore, the, I really wanted to try and make a difference at that higher societal macro level. Um, and at the time, uh, a couple of skills I'd noticed or people had, had been complimentary around was my communication oratory skills, um, my strategy. Uh, so I was quite strategic in, in, in the healthcare system. And I got to know people who were involved in politics. And they said, well, why don't you think about this? Um, my natural leaning, and, and I think the, from that links to that societal good um, piece, was to um, the Labour Party, uh, and that was at the time under obviously Tony Blair, and then um, the transition into Gordon Brown. So, um, also, an interesting link. My my dad actually, my dad stood for political office in Mauritius. So I think there was always, I think there's always some sort of family trait in a number of these things, um, and it was a really interesting time because. Um, I actually had to be a parliamentary candidate for three years because for those that will remember some of the history behind this, when the the Brown-Blair um, transition happened, there was an election that never happened, uh, and so they selected candidates early. So I spent three years actually um, working in Maidstone in Kent where I practiced as a GP, um, and that was very much around supporting the local activists, making sure that we were trying to do good and actually partner as well with those in power because in, those in power at that time in Kent were, were mainly the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives. So this was the mid-2000s, not the you know, 2005-2006. Um, how old were you? Yeah, that was a, that, that's a really good question because one of the things that happens quite quickly in healthcare and then politics is you accelerate quite fast. I was actually a 30-year-old general practitioner now that that is has its advantages and disadvantages, and to be really very honest, one of the advantages is um, you get paid well. And at that point, there was a government restructure with a new contract for healthcare called GMS, and GPs were paid very well. In fact, it was a, a very political hot potato. It was the front page of many newspapers that GPs were earning large numbers, um, and. I then realized one thing was going to happen. I had a whole career and many, many years in front of me. Um, and that's one of the other pivot points, which was I, I, I think that people have phases of their careers. Um, and as you go through those phases, um, you investing in yourself is one of those themes. So one of the investment points was learn more about politics. Another actually was thinking then at what pivot point would I, would I want to do 
more more learning when it came actually to the uh, exec MBA. Um, and I, I think that the different phases are often led for me by new interests um, coming to mind as I meet and network with different people. So from the from the general practitioners, the age was about 30 to mid-30s. Um, and then the political stage was towards the end of that general practitioner time. Um, and then actually the third phase happened as I, as I, as I moved towards um, the pharmaceutical industry and then the MBA coming later, somewhat later in my career than others, actually. So before we go on to that third phase, um, I have to ask you, are you still active in politics? Um, not currently. And it was, um, I was really, um, it was a really interesting time. I, I learned a huge amount about um, how politics works, both at a, lo- a local level and at the more senior level. So I did do some work with, obviously clearly with the area I worked in with healthcare, um, some work um, then talking to Alan Johnson, who was the health secretary at the time, um, and it, it includes even Patricia Hewitt at that point. Um, I, I felt it wasn't actually something that was for me in the longer term, for two reasons. I have huge respect, and I actually have huge respect for all people that stand for political office, um, especially from the Conservative and the Liberal Democrats, because it's a very difficult life. Um, one of the things I would say is um, you are working every single weekend because your constituents are are mainly available on weekends because they're, they're all busy during the week. So I felt that, that that really was something that I wanted to think about more in my family life, and I think the, the second part of that was... Um, the there was a very um, obviously uh, the result happened the the Labour Party eventually uh, as, as we know with Brown lost um, and then there's a one of the things I would say that is an interesting time and and, and I lost obviously I actually lost to somebody called very famous in the UK Anne Widdicombe because she was in Kent she was on Strictly Come Dancing as she was uh, still in moving away from her political times that was when I was standing against her actually was that. Um, there's a moment, and I, I actually felt I missed that moment because it moved to a conservative government, which is obviously still in place now. And I felt to make that societal good and difference, it would really need to be one where the Labour Party was in power. Um, and I've, I've, I've held a, um, I've still support them. I'm actually at the moment because my politics was slightly different to Jeremy Corbyn's. Um, I've moved away from that at this moment. That's not to say I won't re-engage though. And I think that as you see phases of lives and the the different phases. I, I'm, I'm very hopeful that at some point that I will re-engage um, back into uh, politics at some point. So politics um, has lost someone, a rising star like yourself, but it's um, obviously pharmaceuticals gain. Could you tell us a bit about the work that you do at Roche? Yes, yeah, so I'm the uh, I'm the country medical director at Roche, and that also means that I sit on the, the the leadership team for Roche in the UK. So Roche is based uh, Roche and uh, the US part of the company is called Genentech. Um, is one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. Um, it's renowned for its research and development. Um, we're, the, we're actually the largest uh, investor in research and development in healthcare in the world. So and if you look at research and development, Conrad, in all sectors, especially if you're the MBA audience, so you obviously know that um, initially the car firms are up there, so for the Volkswagens of the world, and, and obviously some of the tech companies are up there now. But Roche actually is in the top 10 investors in research and development in the world for medicines. 
predominantly those medicines were in cancer treatment, so oncology, but now we're, move, we're now actually diversifying into many other areas. So some new areas would be multiple sclerosis. And interestingly at the moment, and obviously very, very challenging, um, the work we're doing uh, to combat COVID-19 as well, um, and I'm uh, leading the UK part of that process with a, a great team around me. So what do you find most exciting about the work that you're doing right now? I'd say the, the most exciting bit is the, the collaboration and the networking. Um, the, because fundamentally our customers in the UK are the national healthcare system, so that's the full link of my whole career coming back again, um, truly understanding the customer needs in a, in a somewhat closed ecosystem of the NHS is critical for my teams. Understanding, therefore, ultimately, how can what we do in that earlier phase, research and development, and then in, in that mid-phase when we're launching products, how can you have customer centricity in the customer experience that drives to changing patients' lives? How do you drive that patient outcome? Because the most difficult times always in my uh, career at Roche have been when I have patients contact me directly saying they don't either have access to medicines um, or there is no medicine that's developed in a very specific rare type of cancer or a rare disease. The ability that um, large uh, pharmaceutical companies have, especially in difficult macroeconomic and political times, is to really partner and collaborate with governments, to partner and collaborate with the healthcare system, in our case, the NHS. And that, that, that's the full circle for me, Connor. That's the bit that I was missing that I didn't have in that art and science at the beginning. The bit that I was really yearning for with politics to really join together. But it's really come together um, over the last six to seven years now in being able to link all those different skills. I didn't expect that, right? And part of those, these career journeys is I, I could not have mapped that out. What, what I knew at the time was probably that I needed to join, I needed different skill sets to get there, but there was always a bit of a jump off the edge of a cliff moment. You're going to have to give it a go and trust yourself. Um, so I think that that's really the bit that I've enjoyed most uh, and continue to enjoy with uh, Roche and, and my future steps. When people talk about Big Pharma, I mean, people think about like, like you said, drugs, medicines, tablets, you know, things like that. Um, but it sounds like from what you said that it's the work that you do is more than just giving a medicine, but thinking more holistically about the patient outcome, which is um, obviously to get well, but um, to be, well, not just that last part, which is giving uh, a, the medicine or giving the drug. Is that right? Yeah, and that, that's exactly right. And one of the reasons that um, that I, I can understand that is because I practice medicine. Because ultimately, the prescription of the medicine was one moment in the, that, that patient's journey. But actually, it's, it, it's hopefully a pivotal moment in certain times, especially in cancer treatments. But you have to look at the outcome. And one of the things that I have a responsibility to do is deliver value to the NHS. Because if the NHS obviously is our customer, but it's, a, it, it's not um, an a infinite pot of funds. One of the real challenges that my industry has had has been talking around trust in the industry. Um, you'll know that. And I, in fact, I learned a lot about that on the MBA, around how different industries have different levels of trust. Um, one of the things I've really tried to focus on with my teams and with the whole of Roche in the UK is building up the fact that we're a, 
we're a partner organization um, we're not an organization that just says fine here's a medicine you need to now buy this medicine and we make profit from that the, the bit that i've really thought around is how how do we change patient outcomes at the macro level so we change the outcomes for all patients with breast cancer so breast cancer basically becomes a curable disease and um, i know that sort of moonshot kind of um sort of vision and mission but secondly how do we partner with nhs england nhs in the devolved countries uh, and then we partner with um centers like adenbrooks etc to improve all of those outcomes because then we'll change that trust equation because then people will see that we're not just uh, there because we want to sell products we're part of that bigger ecosystem and the, the final part of that is we then invest a huge amount of that money back into research and development to cure those diseases that at the moment are have huge unmet need. Obviously, we're recording this in 2020, and the big disease that the whole world is is grappling with is COVID-19. Um, before we go into the work that's being done for COVID-19, um, I'm just thinking that most, well, at least for myself, when I think of vaccine development, I, I still think Edward Jenner with a cow and then smallpox. Mm. Um, can you tell us, how does I'm sure that things have developed much more than that, uh, you know, in the last few hundred years. But in the 21st century, what is the process for developing a vaccine? And uh, so the the, the yeah, especially with COVID nineteen, the the two different processes of both vaccines and treatments have have moved on obviously dramatically. Um, and the I, I'm not an expert in vaccines, but I was obviously. Um, I trained at St Mary's where infectious diseases was one of the biggest things because Alexander Fleming and penicillin was discovered there. For me, the vaccine pathways moved into um, a group of companies that are very specialised and dedicated um, to doing that. And you've heard a number of the names um, that are looking at it at the moment. Um, were, and you're clearly seeing that um, some of the academic institutions are leading in this and that Oxford has one of the lead vaccines at the moment, which the government is um, uh, supporting. Um, so the vaccine development pathway has very much accelerated um, and hopefully now we're looking at vaccines in phase two and phase three testing. That's testing um, in large scale um, and that's happened. And I think the big thing for me kind of when I look at this was the first cases that were visible in Wuhan and when we knew the signals were really only December 31st, 2019. We're only seven months later and obviously catastrophic illness and um, my heart goes out to anyone that's been affected by uh, the deaths related to COVID-19. The science has moved at such a pace that the first phase one trial, so those are trials that you do to make sure the vaccine is safe, were already in place four to five months after the first cases. Um, and the treatments uh, for those that have COVID-19 um, we've already seen uh, that some of those are available. So I would say that the the difference between the earlier vaccines are and now where we are now are we have pools of vaccines um, ready for different uh, types of um, illness, uh, different types of uh, illnesses such as COVID-19. We repurpose some of those and there's some work actually um, being done at Oxford and Cambridge on that. And obviously we develop them um, uh, earlier now. Uh, so we've very much accelerated that development pathway. You mentioned about accelerating that pathway and you said phase one was uh, available like four to five months after the first uh, cases would, were detected. Usually, I mean, how long does it take to 
to get to a phase one if it wasn't something like COVID-19 where everybody's resources are, are focused on it? Yeah, and that, that comes back to this, this, this theme that I saw um, really in about February in the UK. Everyone um, started collaborating in a way I've never seen before. So that would be academics, the obvious academics that we hear a lot about at the moment of the teams at Oxford, mainly Cambridge has obviously been involved in that, but Oxford were doing both vaccine and huge clinical trials. Uh, you'd have heard of... Uh, the biggest clinical trial in the world um, in COVID nineteen is called the Recovery Trial. That's coming out of um, that's coming out of o- Oxford, um, and well, there's another trial coming out of Imperial called Remap Cat. These trials are large scale trials for all patients um, who have COVID nineteen. Those started up in record time. So who had to do who had to work together to do that? Well, the first stakeholder is obviously hospitals had to be involved in making sure that they could consent their patients. Secondly, you obviously had academic institutions. And thirdly, um, the regulators, because obviously highly regulated, ensuring patient safety. So the MHRA moved incredibly quickly. Studies that would would usually, um, because of mainly process, would need approval in six months were happening in two to three days, which is uh, not sustainable, but in a crisis is what we needed to do. And then you had all of the other stakeholders at the table. That would be the NHS at the highest level, NHS England. And for the first time, really, um, because treatments were needed, whether vaccines or treatments for COVID-19, once you have COVID-19, the pharmaceutical companies were part of that. Um, That was um, facilitated and led by a number of key stakeholders. You clearly have seen often standing next to the prime minister you've had. Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, you've had the deputy chief medical officers. Uh, one of those is Jonathan Van Tam. Uh, and we quite quickly, I, the, one of the, my big learn from her was at the time, because it did fall to me in the UK and my, uh, and my general manager, we were really transparent. We were seeing use of one of our products um, and our products is a, a monoclonal antibody. So one of those, uh, one of those drugs that kicks in your own immune system and, um, we we were really clear that we were seeing people using it in China, um, but we needed to study it. We don't know it works. We still don't know if it works now. It's in trials. But what we, what we were really clear was we called a bunch of people, and that may sound really simple, but we, we literally called the MHRA, we called the Deputy Chief Medical Officer and said, how can we partner with you to make sure that we have effective treatments for COVID-19 going forward? And that was the, the, my biggest learn. Be transparent, explain what you know is happening, explain about the product and drug you have, but can we partner with you? And now we're seeing the, well, actually we will have some results pending, um, but we are in all of the platform trials to truly understand whether we have drugs that can treat COVID-19. You mentioned a lot about collaboration, being partners with uh, across the whole range of academics, pharma regulators. Do you think these are lessons that everybody will learn and adapt going forward, you, even after hopefully we, we sooner rather than later, we get a treatment or a vaccine for COVID-19 so that we can, again, you know, develop vaccines or treatments for other diseases in, in, in a much faster, faster way? It's a great question, Conrad. Um, I really hope so. I hope that the... The two, three things probably change. One is speed. Um, we, it, it's not sustainable to do these things across um, all therapy areas. 
but speed is of the essence to patients. Patients are waiting um, for these treatments in different areas. So being able to remove bureaucratic steps um, that are literally there because they're bureaucratic, not any of the course that affect patient safety or make sure that the drug works. So those are those are those are bars that clearly are, have to remain at the highest level. Um, but speed is number one. Number two is um, for me open mindedness and trust between partners, so that we're all aiming for that common good of changing those patient outcomes. Um, to do that, you have to have transparency. So, um, therefore, that collaboration comes in. Number three is actually the one that we are all talking around: the use of technology. Um, it sounds really simple, but one of the reasons that those uh, that it used to be very difficult um, to have timelines that were fast was we were all waiting to organise diaries, all get down to London, all being all be in a meeting room. Now, technology means that, like we're doing now, we're, we're in different parts of Cambridge right now, but we don't have to be together. Um, the Zoom or Google Hangouts or all of these different platforms means that at times, and this will happen next week, I'll be at a meeting with at least 25 other people from all across um, different sectors of the government um, and um, from NICE and other parties, and that's been incredibly quick to organise. Um, and the documents are all ready and, uh, because we're using technology. And again, just for those that um, had to book for something really simple, whatever country you're in, things like booking your your local practitioner or GP appointment, going to all of that's gone virtual and telemedicine's happened online. Trials are now going to be uh, run by telemedicine. That That catalyst is something that I don't think we'll go back from. I think that it's un- incredibly unfortunate that COVID-19 took us to get to this point. But we are going to see, for me, a fundamental shift um, in how uh, medicine, but not just medicine, but society will change because of COVID-19. I want to move away from COVID-19 and talk about the executive MBA that you did at Cambridge. Why did you choose to do an executive MBA? Yeah, it, it, it was a, when I, I was actually one of those pivot points. Um, so as part of my career um, at at the time, I was in a, a research organization, a clinical research organization called PPD. I'd moved more out of my comfort zone. I'd moved from a medical role into a role where I had PL responsibility for really the first time, um, which meant that a number of my stakeholders were people from finance backgrounds, uh, people from marketing backgrounds. So my first thing was, it was really simple. I didn't understand a lot of the language they were talking um, and they were not talking medicine um, sort of history examination as we learn in medical school. So the first thing is I really wanted to um, ensure that I could really understand and have done the the legwork to, to understand areas such as finance, um, sort of corporate responsibility, because I was moving into more high-level roles. I didn't really understand how businesses worked. Um, and the third, thirdly, though, was some of those softer skills. So I was looking at how could I get there. Um, the second is my network. My network. My network had always been built um, in medicine from my parents all the way through. I knew huge numbers of people in the NHS, but I knew virtually no one in other sectors. So it was very linear. If I wanted to think about how to improve a service. I wouldn't know who to call him, but actually what I wanted to do was talk to somebody in different industries. Could that be somebody from the finance industries or the automobile industries or the tech industries? The third was I felt I was getting a bit stale. 
um, in the sense of how could I be more creative? How could I, how could I take those next future steps? My career path had never really been truly linear, but how could I expand those opportunities? I live in Cambridge, so one of the other factors for me was. Um, this is a very personal factor. How did I unlock this amazing university on my doorstep, which I didn't really have a connection to? Um, so whether that be the college, uh, the life of the colleges and getting to know tutors, or whether that be the amazing institution of obviously 800 years old of the whole university. Um, and to that point, I'm actually now a, a William Pitt fellow at Pembroke as well, which has been part of my journey. So for me, it was the those three things coming together. And the catalyst actually was Wash, because when I went to Wash, I actually moved into being a, the equivalent of a business unit director. So very much away from that medical side, had a sales team, had a marketing team and a medical team. And I really, I, I can't say how much it changed the trajectory of both my, my thought processes, but also uh, my career trajectory um, to, to open up um, all of these different opportunities. Rav, as we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about careers in the healthcare and pharmaceutical industries. If, if I meet MBAs who feel inspired to join the healthcare industry but lack your deep medical expertise, what should I tell them? Uh, that, that's often um, a question uh, that I, I get asked, actually. So what, what I would tell them would be, again, Firstly, use your network you have got from your MBA, especially now the ecosystem of healthcare around Cambridge and around Judge Business School with AstraZeneca being here is very, and huge numbers of startups. The first thing I would do is use use the network that you are signing up to when you sign up to the MBA at Cambridge, uh, Cambridge and Judge Business School. So reach out to people, uh, go onto the alumni network, um, do that respectfully because people obviously are busy, but just say, look, I'd, could, could you spare 15 minutes over a, over a Zoom meeting or a Hangout just to, to, to help me understand? And I would, I would do one thing, though. I would seek to explore. I wouldn't push too hard on getting a job in it. Sounds, it sounds odd, but explore more, be curious, and then choose your pathway. I, I have seen a few people that are a bit too much. I really want to get in. Explore more would be my first thing. I think the second thing is there are so many huge networking events within the university as a whole, not always just out of judge, um, but run by a number of the societies and run by a number of the colleges. Um, meet people there because the speakers are in the right headspace to meet people, especially uh, clearly afterwards. Um, so um, attend as many sessions as you can. Um, the third is, and it's a really interesting one, um, there's a medical school. And it's one of the underdeveloped links that I think we have. Um, the, the reason I did, I, I think I really uh, enjoy growing a network at um, Jarja was I got involved in some of the competitions. Um, and it sounds crazy, but I got involved in competitions working with medical students and some of the engineers about solving big societal problems. Um, we we came uh, we formed teams we 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 came close we never actually won any of them but that 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 outcome wasn't the winning that was the matter what what matters is I created a network where suddenly I got to know um, for example Greg Winter who was the master at Trinity who won the Nobel Prize why because I volunteered to work on a program called the Cambridge Development Initiative which was a group of people who were looking at changing healthcare in Tanzania. Suddenly, um, I'm um, working as a non-executive director for that group in Tanzania, 
um, one of the other one of the, the other uh, Neds is a Nobel Prize winner. It's that ecosystem that you have that is unique to Cambridge, and it is unique to Cambridge. And I don't mean to be derogatory to the other place; I know it well, but I do think it is unique to us, especially in healthcare. So, um, be curious. Um, I come back to, to to close on um, when um, Jochen Rund, who's one of the lecturers you all know well. One of the things he said to me and our class was. Um, you'll often have your head down, but wander through the streets of Cambridge and just do one thing, just look up. Suddenly you'll walk past Trinity, or you'll walk past King's, or you'll walk past the museums um, and um, the Fitzwilliam, and you'll go, things can be, you can be hugely creative in this place. And, and that would be the one bit of advice I would give for anyone trying to get into healthcare or other, other areas. Look up a bit more. Don't get so stuck into your work. It's hugely important, but look up and then think about the possibilities. And that would be my, uh, my, my parting theme to anyone thinking about going on these journeys. That's great advice. Anne, and I hope students uh, will feel inspired, follow up on that and push themselves out of their comfort zones and take the same kind of career pivots uh, that you obviously have made so, so successfully. So thank you very much, Rav. Thank you, Colin. It's been a pleasure. You can listen to this show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, subscribe if you've not done so already. If you've already subscribed, thank you so much. Just please share this with someone you already know who would benefit from listening. You can also leave a rating and review. It helps others discover this show. You can let me know what you think about the show by tweeting me at Conrad Chua 16 Chua is spelled C-H-U-A. Or you can find me on Instagram at Chua K-H. Till next time, this is Conrad Chua on Changing Careers.